And as Cynthia mentioned, this is you know, fall kickoff, so we're celebrating. And uh, our church began two years ago in the, the living room of the Bilskis and then grew and expanded. And we moved to Sunday night over in Eagle Creek. And then last year began ministry here on Sunday morning. And you can tell we're obeying the Lord's command to be fruitful and multiply. Look at all the kids funneling out. <laughs> so it has been a, it's been a special couple years for us, for Cynthia and I, the life, you know, us together, life of our family um, in this church. And so it's a special day for us. It's also a special text that we're looking at. We're going through the book of Ephesians. And so we're in chapter 3. And uh, we're going to look primarily at verse 20, but 14 through 21. And verse 20 is now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or think. And that for our, my own life has been such a precious promise that's been uh, an anchor or a ballast in my life throughout the years. It was uh, actually the theme of our wedding. So Cynthia and I were married 11 years ago, and this was the theme verse of our wedding. And uh, the reason why is um, we understand that one of the things that we cause in our worship here is a cognitive dissonance. And so uh, the question I'm most often asked, so Cynthia will kind of stand and sing, and it's so uh, beautiful and lovely, and then I'll get up and talk, and then people will say, it creates dissonance because they say, how, how did you land her? Like, how, are you like independently wealthy? Did you hypnotize her? Did your family owe like her father a, a bribe? Like, how did you uh, land it? And I have no idea. It's a miracle. So standing, living demonstration of the miracle of God's grace. And this text was the text of our wedding because uh, I fully recognize that reality. And when I was 19, you're just kind of in that world of 19 teenaged angst where you're just trying to figure out life. You know, it's, it's like, I, I don't know, I think like the two worst time periods of your life are like middle school. Nobody wants to be in middle school ever again because you have no idea who you are and what the world's about. And then that like 19, 20-year-old stage where you're just, you just don't know who you are. You don't know what life has for you. And I was trying to figure out the whole world of kind of like career and calling and dating. And I didn't even want to get into that messiness because I just looked at all the train wrecks of relationships that were all around me. And I remember uh, just having no clue what I was doing. And I felt, uh, before I went to college, like my freshman year in college, uh, two verses became like my anchors. And one came from Daniel chapter 1, where it says, Daniel resolved not to defile himself. And I went to college, small school, to play basketball, and that was just, all right, you will resolve not to defile yourself in this world. And the other one was Ephesians 3.20, that now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or think, and there will come a day where you don't know where you're going or what you're going to do or have no clue right now, but there will come a day where you pause and you look back and you marvel because you will have tangible evidence that he can do immeasurably more than all you could ever ask or imagine. And like our wedding day was a, a physical expression of that reality, that he is good for his word. He did immeasurably more than all I could ever have imagined. And then there's certain cycles and seasons like that in your life. And one of the great gifts that the gospel gives us is it gives us a strong hope, 
a strong hope where we have the hope that uh, no matter what we experience or go through, we'll get these glimpses in this life where we look back and marvel and say, he's, he's done so much more than I ever could have thought. And then we have the hope, the confident hope that one day we'll stand before him when he wipes away every tear from every eye and every pain and every problem and every difficulty just evaporates in the, in the light of his radiance like a morning mist. And then we'll say confidently, he's done immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. So much better than we ever could have dreamed or planned or, or, or orchestrated for ourselves. So what I want to do this morning is just kind of lead us in a kind of guided meditation where we just let those words soak into our souls. And so we're in the context of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, and the context is prayer. So this is Paul's second great prayer for the church in Ephesus and the surrounding churches. So first what I want to do is just let us think about prayer and uh, before we get into it, there's actually three lessons that I want us to learn here. But, but before we do, I want to think a little bit as, all right, what is the actual meaning and motivation of prayer? And then what are some of the lessons we can learn from this verse? And the, the key verse we're going we're gonna to soak in is 320. But first of all, we could do it, just think about for a minute, have you ever thought about like, what is prayer? You know, there's certain things we kind of think we know about, but then you actually think about it, all right, it kind of blows your mind, like, what is that? Like, freedom or time. Like, everybody knows what time it is, but nobody knows what time is. And so, what is that? Or what is prayer? What is it actually? And there's uh, kind of the world, in one sense, has a love-hate relationship with trying to figure out what do we mean or what are we talking about uh, with prayer? Because we can, sometimes we think it's like, it's almost like soul pixie dust, where you just sprinkle a little on and then you're, you know, your happiness can fly into the clouds or something. There was an ad campaign a couple years ago called Try Prayer. It's like, well, you know, if, you, if you're, uh, I don't know, it's like, it's like these little, you know, if, if you have upset stomach, then try being gluten-free and that might help you. Or if you have disappointments, try prayer. It might you just sprinkle it on. Um, I grew up in the 80s, so uh, was a Hulkamaniac as a kid. So any other Hulkamaniacs? In the, and you remember the, the Hulkster's advice to all the little Hulkamaniacs? You got to say your prayers and take your vitamins. You want to be big and strong? Then prayer is kind of like the thing you sprinkle on your life. It's like vitamins. You say them. But then the, the kind of secular world looks at prayer and doesn't quite, it like wants it, but doesn't quite understand it. I have a book on my, on my desk that I've just kind of been picking through. It's really, it's a fascinating book. It's called When God Talks Back. And it's written by two, um, I think they're at NYU, sociologists who are very antagonistic to evangelicals in general. And uh, it's a sociological study. So their basic uh, commitment is that the material world is all there is. There's no such thing as spiritual reality. And uh, their basic want to understand, right, when, when Christians say they're praying, what are they doing? And uh, the New York Times had a book review of it and it caught my attention because this is how the book review starts off. It says, secular Americans' worst fears have come true. There is now scientific evidence that evangelical churches brainwash believers. They don't merely teach that Adam and Eve actually existed and that gay marriage is an abomination. They change the way the members' brains work. They hypnotize them. 
So the idea is that prayer is just some type of mental like hypnosis where we're brainwashing our children and brainwashing um, ourselves. So prayer is this dangerous thing. But what's interesting is we also live in a world where everybody wants to be spiritual but not religious. So everybody says, I'm spiritual. And uh, if you ask, like you go around the neighborhood and ask, if you ask, um, you know, we're from the church, can we pray for you? Almost everyone will say, yes, please do. So it's spiritual but not religious. And then there's kind of this fad in the modern business world of mindfulness and meditation. Like Forbes this year said one of the, hot, the hottest business trend of 2018 was mindfulness. And so, you know, these things go in cycles. So, you know, four or five years ago, if you wanted to be on cutting edge of industry, you needed like an open office. So if you were doing knowledge work, you needed open offices, which anybody who's ever worked in one knows that's the absolute worst way to get anything actually accomplished. But it was a good idea for like a day. And then if you want to have, you know, a cutting edge business place, you need ping pong tables and all this kind of stuff. What else? You need time and place for mindfulness. And the idea is that... Uh, Mindful in this meditation, you're kind of seeking to calm your spirit and seek inner peace and inner uh, tranquility so you can focus, be more reflective, be more present, be more in the moment. And is that what actual prayer is? Is that what we do when we're talking about prayer? Because here, all throughout Ephesians, you have tremendous illustration and example of what real biblical prayer is. So let's read the passage and let's think first, all right, what do we see here that Paul's telling this is what it is, this is why you do it, and then what we can learn from it. So start in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in, the, in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so when we look at what Paul actually teaches about prayer, there's a couple things, because what I wanted to do in this sermon is kind of set up, because we're going, in the life of our church, we're in the process of uh, transitioning from an independent campus of our mother church into a, a, or a dependent campus into an independent congregation, localized. And so we're looking at some of our formal structures and putting the key things in place so we can be a healthy, thriving congregation for generations to come. So in one sense, we thought this is year two of 200 years of ministry in this community. It's a new community, and we want to be an anchor church that's established here for gospel ministry for generations. And uh, one of the key pieces is you have to have prayer as a very foundation of who you are and what you're doing. And every Christian, uh, I believe there's three things you need to be a healthy Christian. You need sound biblical doctrine. You need continual renewal and refreshment by the Holy Spirit, and then you need to live faithfully and wherever God has called you. Kind of those three things. And that's exactly what you need to be a faithful, we need as a faithful, healthy church. So that second piece, what is it that brings renewal, refreshment, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit reviving and rejuvenating us on a regular basis? 
And it's this commitment to prayer that fuels that. But what we'll see as we look at Paul, I was really struck because my, my task, I said, all right, this week and next week, I want to teach, I want to kind of share some of Paul's teaching about prayer. And it dawned on me for the first time I was trying to say, he actually doesn't do a lot of teaching about prayer. He doesn't do a lot of teaching. He commands us to do it, and then he does it. But he doesn't really teach us much about it. So it hit me. I mean, maybe this is the kind of thing you can't really teach. You have to experience or learn. So he, he embodies it. And then when you actually read and look at his prayers, you see something really interesting. Because I think for, for Paul, biblical praying is not seeking inner peace. It's not seeking inner tranquility or emotional stability or calming the monkey mind in your head so you can uh, be calm. What he's actually doing, it's he's calling on the Lord to do what he's promised to do in the gospel. He's asking the Lord to make real all the things that God has promised certain things. Jesus died to accomplish certain things, and the Holy Spirit was poured out to apply certain things, and he's asking them to do it, make them real. So he says, there's power in you, and I want it unleashed. All the things that you know that are true about you, I want you to experience in all of its vitality and all of its power. So real prayer, what he's doing whenever he prays is he's asking the Lord to do the great work of the gospel uh, through him in the lives of others. And that's what fuels his praying. So I think what actual prayer is, real biblical prayer, is crying out and calling to the Lord to fulfill his promises, to do what he said he's going to do. This morning, as we look at the passage, kind of the way we'll break it down, is 14 and 15 highlight who the, who the person is Paul prays to. And then 20 and 21 highlight who he's praying. So it begins with God and it ends with God. Starts with who we bring our request to, and then it ends with praise to that one. And then in the middle are the actual request. So this week, we're just going to look at the first part, who he's actually praying to. But I'm so fascinated because you look at the actual request, everything he asked God to do has already been achieved and accomplished for them by Christ and has been applied to them by the Holy Spirit. He's just, in essence, asking more of what's already theirs, more experience of what's already theirs. And I think if we're really going to experience confidence in prayer, it comes from aligning ourselves with his will and his desires, and his stated purpose, and his plan. You know, last week we looked at this grand plan that he's worked out for redemption throughout the history of the ages, and real, powerful, confident prayer comes when you align yourself uh, with that. So let's look at a couple things here. Let's look at real prayer uh, is marked by access to God the Father. It's according to God's glory and power, and then it accomplishes far more than we could ever ask or imagine. And what's interesting about all three of those things are things that Jesus died to provide for us and his people. These are part of the gifts of his gospel to us. So let's think about the first one. You see there in verse 14, for this reason I bow my knee before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. And the first thing that prayer brings us is access to the Father. It's access. Christ died so you could have access to his Father. And, uh, you know, a couple things you just see here. For this reason, I bow my knee. You notice that act of reverence, that posture of reverence. I bow my 
knee. And one of the realities you see all throughout the Bible, one of the great promises, is that every knee is going to bow eventually. You can either do it now joyfully and willfully or do it when he comes again, but every knee will bow. And But it's, it, what's intriguing, I want you to note, is it's before the Father. And I wonder if the idea of God as Father was when, when Paul got knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus and his entire world got flipped upside down, I wonder if one of the biggest mental adjustments was that now he can call God his Father. I mean, he, he knew the Old Testament. He probably had the vast majority of it memorized. And he was a scholar's scholar, one of the most brilliant people who have ever lived. So he knew all of these things. He knew the Old Testament declaration of God as the creator and maker of heaven and earth, the supreme sovereign Lord. Um, but there's only little hints and glimpses in the Old Testament that the relationship can be God as Father. And that's one of the great radical shifts that Jesus brings with the, with the new covenant, that now we can enter and approach God as Father. And you see all throughout Ephesians, it, it just uh, exudes that relationship. And I think it's one of the things that just shocked him. Even in Ephesians, he, he glories in the fact in chapter 1, verse 5, that we've been adopted now into God's family. In 111, we've been made co-heirs with Christ. We're now a part of God's household in chapter 2. And now because of that, through the Spirit, we have access where we can enter into the Father's presence. And I wonder if we sufficiently think how just that simple reality is such good news. read an interesting uh, article this week. Uh, it was by Malcolm Gladwell. of several years old. And I think it, it, it's in the, I read it online, but I think it's in his book called uh, What the Dog Saw. But it was, a, it was a profile of Ron Popel, who is the late night TV infomercial, the as seen on TV guy. And he actually made this America is amazing. You can make a fortune in anything. He made this fortune selling junk on TV and like convincing people that it's the latest, greatest, most amazing thing. It has this whole like as seen on TV empire. But what's so intriguing about the profile piece is that his whole life was driven not to achieve late night television fame or not to make the greatest affection of an absentee father. His father was a kind of this kind of magnet of this big uh, kind of gizmo-making empire, and then got a divorce when he was young. Sent him and his brother off to boarding school, moved completely away from them, and kind of effectively sent them out of his life. And here, this profile, this man is in his late 70s, and he's telling the story of when he was 12 years old at boarding school, and it was parents' weekend when parents were supposed to come and visit, and he knew he knew his parents were not coming. But for the entire weekend, he was looking down the road, hoping, hoping, hoping. And then that just, that compelled his entire life that he was going to do something to gain that affection. And it was sad. And I wonder how, you know, we live in a world that I think is crying out for father hunger, also read an interesting statement from a general manager of the Houston Rockets. He said to every player they interview, they ask them, who is the most significant male influence in your life? And he said, three-fourths of them have no answer. Like, they don't even have a single male individual they can place as a significant influence. 
and said the most common answer they've received in the last couple of years is President Obama. They said, where, where are their fathers? And one of the first, you know, as I think about our ministry here, one of the things, there's the hundreds of things that kind of make us chuckle, but I think about one sermon illustration I did at one of our very first services at, uh, at Eagle Creek, because I thought I had this really good uh, sermon illustration until our middle school boys just shot holes all through it afterwards. So thank you, middle school boys, for listening. But I was asking, so the way I set it up, I said, all right, what are the three highest grossing movie franchises in movie history? And then the three, so I'll kind of get to the punchline so we don't go through the whole thing again. But uh, the answer I was looking for were Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, and Star Wars. But they, I didn't take into consideration the Marvel movie franchises. And since there's like 19, they've blown. So, so they're not quite the three highest grossing, uh, but they're up there. And then I asked, all right, what's the, one of the common threads between Harry Potter, Star Wars, and Lord of the Rings? Yeah, the main character, they're all fatherless. You know, Frodo has no father and seeks one in Gandalf. Harry has no father and seeks one in Dumbledore. And Luke has no father. He seeks one in Obi-Wan. And of course, afterwards, the boys came on and said, well, you know, Luke did have a father. <laughs> yes, that's true. He wasn't the best example of a loving father, though. So we'll keep that. <laughs> and it does just make me wonder, maybe that our cult is crying out and letting us know there's this significant soul ache in our, in our souls. And one of the things, prayer is not just like a means to manipulate God, or it's not just a way to give you internal peace. It's access to a heavenly father that can give you peace. It can bring you peace and stability, but it comes from the presence of the relationship. And so it's access. And that's one of the great gifts. But notice the next thing that it's according to, it's according to the riches of his glory in 16, and then it's according to, in 20, the power at work within us. So all of this comes, so uh, what it is is access, and then the resources that are available are according to his glory and his power. So think about that. Let's look at that verse and just kind of let those words soak for a minute. It's according to his power that's at work. And Paul says, now to him who is able... I mean, a couple things about the Father is that He is able. He is able. He is able to do something. There's an interesting word now to Him who is able to do. Somebody's to do. The Greek word is poieo, where we get poem. He's able to create. He's able to craft. He's able to accomplish. He's able to take dissonant words and sounds and things that make no sense and then bring them together in this harmonious, beautiful, and create a beautiful thing out of it. He is able to do. All throughout the Old Testament, like in Isaiah, he'll challenge you know, the gods of the nations. And one of the great claims is our God is able to perform works. He can do things. But notice, it's not just he's able to do things. He's able to do and measure more than all we ask. So he's not just able. He works. He hears. He hears. Think about how often prayer is connected with asking. Ask and you will receive. Seek, you'll find. Knock and it'll be open. Why do you have? You have because you do not ask. Ask, he hears. And it's worth thinking about why, why are we so cautious in our asking? I mean, have you ever been around little kids? One of the things that re re it just remarkable to me, and maybe it's just my kids, because they have no, what's the word I'm looking for? Shame's not the right word. No, 
In, yeah, no inhibition. They have no problem asking for anything they see. Like uh, we, were, we were walking through the Walmart parking lot the other day and one of our daughters, they didn't want just like this little toy. There was a car in the parking lot they wanted. Will you buy me that? Daddy? No, okay. And then like my aunt, jo, our aunt, Johanna, she went to Paris a couple weeks ago and one of our daughters asked for her birthday, she wanted Paris. Not a trip to Paris, the, the town Paris. I'm like, who, whose family do you think you're born into? And, no, but no inhibitions. No, okay. And then why? But so, so often we're so Now we're coming before a king. Uh, large petitions bring because his grace is such that you can never ask too much. And we, um, we're cautious or embarrassed or often ask for the wrong things. That's James's point in James chapter 4. We ask, we don't receive because we ask with the wrong motives. But as we study and look at these prayers, it can give us confidence. These are the kind of things that God wants to give to us and, and ask. He wants us to ask him to build his church, to help us conquer sin, to grow in all of the fruits of the Spirit. So we ask. But he is able to do all. He does all. So it's not just, all right, we'll give you 35%. It's all of these things. And it's not just what you ask, it's also what you think. Because even the most generous person of, uh, in the world is limited by the requests we can make. Like, if you don't ask for help, nobody can help you. But even with him, he's not limited to what you ask. It's even what you think. He's aware of the most intimate parts of who you are, what you're thinking. He's not limited that way. And he's able to do immeasurably more. He actually wants to offer something that's better. Something that's better than we can even though his expectations and desires for our life are better than our own. And it's immeasurably more. Paul's already told us in Ephesians chapter 1 that he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every single spiritual blessing. And it's immeasurably more. There's a super abundance. I really love these things about Paul because this word, immeasurably, it's not even a real word. And as somebody who's often uh, challenged about making up words, it's like, well, Paul does it too. And this in Greek, he just adds, it's like super abundant, totally huge more. And he's just adding like uh, prefixes to try and say it's, it's, it's immeasurably more. It's a super abundance. But then notice the last thing I want you to see is that that accomplishes more than anything we could ever imagine. And you know, I think the life of faith, so much of the life of faith is just believing that he is able. He really is able. I mean, you can go through the Old Testament, you can go through just kind of the, the scriptures, and you see all these examples of people who live faithfully, and they, just cl they were clinging to the promise that God is able. If you think about it like Abraham in Romans 4, it says he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And even though he looked at his own body and thought, I'm old and as good as dead, he looked at Sarah and said, there's no way God can provide an, an heir. And, but he was able. Genesis 17, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk with me and be, be blameless. And he was fully convinced that he was able to provide those promises. 
Other stories like the king, it's not, it's a, not a well-known story, but Amaziah, the king in Second Chronicles 25, and he was in the midst of plain kind of power politics, and, and the prophet of the Lord came to him and said, do not play these games, do not do these things. He'd already kind of spent money to try and manipulate the army and get these different kind of things, and the prophet said, the Lord will not bless you. And he said, well, I can't, I've already gone too far down this road. I've already spent too much money trying to make this happen. It's kind of the classic sunk cost bias. He said, we're, we're already too far down, we've got to stay on it. And the prophet, this is his response to the man of God answered, the Lord is able to give you far more than you've already given. The Lord is able. You don't have to do the wrong thing because you don't think there's no way out of this situation. He is able to provide all you need. Do you believe that? And then in Jeremiah 32, that the Lord, um, he is able uh, to... Because there's nothing too strong for him. He is the Lord. He is the God of all flesh. He is able. And then think about the two examples in Daniel, Daniel 3 and Daniel 6. You know, in Daniel 3, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were uh, brought forward because they're not going to bow down to the king's golden idol, and when all the music of the land plays and everybody bows down, they refused to do it, and they were going to stand their ground. And then they get challenged, and their response is, uh, the king says, you're going to die. We're going to throw you into uh, the furnace. And says, if that be so, our God whom we serve, he is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But then even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. So he's able. And then Daniel in chapter 6, when King Darius outlaws all prayer, it says for one month, he gets tricked and says, there's going to be no prayer. Uh, and if anybody prays, they die. And Daniel says, I'm not obeying that. And so he opens up his window and starts praying three times a day. And then he gets taken and Darius doesn't want to throw him into the lion's den, but he's trapped. He's been tricked, manipulated. He feels like he has to. Throws him in there. He doesn't sleep all night because he's worried about Daniel, and he runs down and cries out to him, Oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually, was he able to save you? And the declaration of the Lord's people throughout every generation is yes. He was able you think, look at the things in the New Testament. You know, and when John the Baptist uh, in Matthew chapter 3 looks at the Israelites and they're kind of pompously pretending to be better than they are. And he says, don't think of yourselves and don't brag that we have Abraham as our father. God is able to raise up and have these rocks sing his praise. But what Jesus says in John chapter 10, there's certain things that aren't there, there is no ability to happen. And he's talking about the people that the Father has given him. And he said, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And so we see that I think the great fight of faith, the walk of faith, so often is to believe that he is able. And that's a challenge for us for a number of reasons. One is we live in a cynical age. You know, we're in a cynical age. You know, one of the things that just, it's, remarkable about our kind of culture is uh, we pay a lot of money to people whose job it is to, is to make us laugh. Like, we want to always be laughing. And uh, a comedian's job is to make fun of the world. We get paid a lot of money just to make fun of the world. And you live in a world where that's so, like, central. You, know, you can become so cynical, 
And we live in just a cynical age. And I wonder how that has that the 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 stains of cynicism, if they've that those acidic stains, if they've eaten away at your faith and eaten away at you know, is there someone who you've given up on? Or something that you've given up on? You know, our one of the we uh, one of my our little girls loves Anna Green Gables, and she's Annabelle Anna Green. We have the same name. We're you know we're friends, and so it's really funny when you hear real little children say things that they hear. Well, sometimes it's not funny actually, but I was gonna say it's really funny when you hear little children say things that they hear adults say. But um, you know, but. Anna Green, Annabelle loved Anna Green Gables, so she would watch Anna Green. And Anna Green Gables has this line when she's like nine, and uh, she has this cry of despair where she says, my life is a graveyard of broken dreams. <laughs> and then, you know, it's overly dramatic. And, and, but then it would get really funny because at the time, you know, our four-year-old, like when she wouldn't get like ice cream, would say, my wife is a graveyard of broken dreams. And she couldn't even say it. And I'm like, no. Your life is not that bad. I mean, you know, we're trying our best. We recognize fully that one day you'll sit in a counselor's office and talk about all the problems you're bearing. Like, well, we get that. But it is not that bad right now. And so sometimes we can over-exaggerate the difficulty we're actually experiencing. And, but what's the cry of, of faith in your life? What do you need to believe that the Lord can accomplish and then what he did is align our desires with his purposes. Like his purposes for you is not to make your life easy, but it's to make it holy. It's to make you more mature, to make you fully formed. Like he prays here that he wants you to be dwelt with all the fullness of God so you're a mature believer. So what does that look like? And I think what Paul would say, well, you have to understand what God has done for you. So you know how to pray. You have to live in the light of what he's done and who you are. You have to ask him to help you show others, uh, reflect that in your own life. And then you need to see grace-filled glimpses where you begin to see little snapshots of the glory that's coming. And so there's some ways we can pray for these things. You can pray things like, Lord, help me to see this part of my life that's difficult or a struggle. Help me to see this part as your great work in my life and in the world. I mean, how transformative can it be if uh, every aggravation can be re- turned into an opportunity of seeing his work in your life? Or, Lord, help us. Lord, use this situation uh, not to take it away, to, but make us more like Jesus and to bring others to know him. Lord, strengthen me so that I might point others to him today, according, uh, encouraging them to see your agenda in their life. Or pray things like, Lord, work through me to advance your agenda in the lives of my friends and family and in the world through the gospel. So um, one of the things that we all need, just that continual encouragement to be refreshed, to believe that the Lord is able. So as we transition now to communion, just want to take a few minutes and just lead us to prayer and spend some time praying those things that they will become true in our life. So pray with me. So, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for access that we have to your Father. So, if I pray for anyone who's come into this room and they have experienced the same uh, difficulty and trauma that Ron Papel has experienced and the, the abandonment that they have felt, we pray that you would be a father to them. 
We pray or we thank you for the family, your, your family of faith that can rally and be the family we never had or the family we always needed. So I pray if anyone's coming here wounded and come weary, encourage them and refresh them by the reality that we have access to our Heavenly Father, that Jesus spilt his blood so we could come into your presence. Help us not to take that for granted or take it lightly. And Lord, we ask that you would help us, shape us, mold us to be men and women who are marked by all of the fruits of your Spirit. And we ask that you help us to love um, our growth more than our comfort. We ask that you help us to love your kingdom more than our comfort and ease. And we ask that you help us in all things to become more like Christ. And all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.